Our friend Edgar Schein has told us it can be argued that the only thing of real importance that leaders do is create and manage culture. That the unique talent of leaders is their ability to understand and work with culture, and it is an ultimate act of leadership to destroy culture when it is viewed as dysfunctional. This is what we're going to focus on today. Culture and the leader's role in shaping it and employees' role in enacting it and negotiating it. Hello and welcome to The Communicative Leader, hosted by me, Dr. Leah O'Million Hodges. My friends call me Dr. O. I'm a professor of communication and a leadership communication expert. On The Communicative Leader, we're working to make your work life what you want it to be. I want us to revisit that quote we heard in the opening. It can be argued that the only thing of real importance that leaders do is create and manage culture, that the unique talent of leaders is their ability to understand and work with culture, and the ultimate act of leadership is to destroy culture when it is viewed as dysfunctional. Shine goes so far to see leadership and culture as intertwined, where we can't disentangle the role of leaders from cultures they create and work within. He also suggests that considering all of the changes organizations have weathered in the past few decades, growing more complex, operating at faster paces, increasing in diversity, that organizations and their leaders need to become perpetual learners. Perpetual learners. I think this is a really cool and a really accurate way to describe effective leaders. Not just effective leaders, but exemplary leaders. Now let's consider why a commitment to learning is required. Yes, not just encouraged or not just suggested, but absolutely indispensable for leaders who wish to continue to guide their organizations to success, to evolve, to remain relevant. Well, we have a paradox here, right? In order to remain successful, organizations need to grow. They need to change in order to meet consumers' needs. We know many of the most successful organizations, we're thinking Zappos, we're thinking Google, we're thinking Disney, they have incredibly strong cultures. And there's the rub, my friends. Culture tends to be stable. It tends to be predictable and prescriptive. It is designed that way in order to speak to new employees, seasoned employees, and senior managers all the same. So we hear the importance of establishing a strong culture. Again, something that tends to be fairly fixed, but in the same breath, we're talking about the need to adapt, to flex, to evolve. Yes, a paradox, my friends. So how do we grow to meet consumer and market demands, all while maintaining our North Star, our culture? This is where the idea of a learning culture comes into play. If we commit as a leadership team, as an organization, to the fact that we are always learning, we're always monitoring internal and external circumstances, we're collecting and reviewing data, We're engaging in conversation with our employees, other stakeholders, adapting to remain ahead of trends. Well, that'd really be something, huh? Like many things we discuss. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm on board. But how do I actually put this into action? Intention, reflection, and patience. As a way to help us think about what a learning culture might look like, Shine gives us some characteristics of cultures that are learning-based. 
Shine gives us 10 characteristics, and we're going to group these in three ways to help us better understand what this might look like. So I want us to think about these suggestions in terms of a focus on the environment or the structure of an organization, a focus on the people, and a focus on learning. We don't necessarily need to separate these into these categories, but again, I want to point out that these common themes that go across these characteristics include engaged employees who work in organizations that intentionally integrate learning-centered processes into their environment. So let's start with characteristics that help us consider the environment or structural elements that are going to allow us to engineer that learning environment we want. Number one, a proactivity assumption. A learning culture assumes that we as leaders and employees, we need to commit to being proactive problem solvers and learners. We aren't waiting for something to break, to crack, to explode, to no longer sell, but rather we are always thinking about how do we improve? This means instilling learning processes as part of everyday organizational activities. Think about this throughout the stages of project development, when we're kicking off a new campaign, after the launch. Shine suggests that the steadfast commitment to the learning process is more important than a solution. Yeah, you heard me right, that the learning process is more important than one solution. What we're saying here is if we build and we integrate these proactive learning and problem-solving structures into our everyday processes, we are molding a culture to be a learning-centered one. What might that look like? So I want you to think about weekly reflection sections. What went well? What could we do better? What haven't we thought about? What did we think about too late? And what about some routine listening sessions? Think about your stakeholder groups. Ask them questions and listen. It is amazing what can emerge when people feel heard. And I want you to design spaces and opportunities for creativity. Some companies like 3M give employees a percentage of their time to work on passion projects. Your organization may not have a specific time allotment, but even if managers take the time to engage in yearly ideation sessions with each employee to say, what do you wish you could create or fix or alter given the time or space or other resources? That can go a really long way in tapping into our subject matter experts and thinking about how things could be better. Another characteristic of learning cultures related to structure and environment is the idea that an environment can be changed. It is malleable. It is manageable. Organizations have leaders who think culture is set, that it is unmovable. Sure, they might enjoy some initial successes, but again, they're going to have a hard time meeting future demands. What else do we need? An orientation toward the future. Even if the present is going exceedingly well, right? And this is evidenced by revenue and other pertinent metrics. Again, thinking that continuing that one way has always worked, this is really short-sighted, my friends. Now we have one that I especially love, a commitment to full and open task-relevant communication. I realize when I say I fully love that and I talk about this commitment to full and open task-relevant communication, I get that I'm showing you I am a communication nerd. I embrace that fully. I just wanted to acknowledge that. 
And I love this one because it explicitly highlights the defining role communication plays in leadership and organizational functioning. Shine tells us that the need for multiple channels is essential, right? So employees can easily, efficiently connect across departmental boundaries and even geographic ones as well. A question Shine poses to leaders, what is the absolute minimum communication system you need to have an organization that is able and committed to sharing relevant task knowledge? Again, this means employees on a production floor, for example, they are able to physically share ideas or concerns with those in decision-making positions. Does this mean everyone has access to organizational email? Does it mean there is an anonymous suggestion box? Does it mean management has routinely scheduled listening sessions for those to offer these ideas and that they're rewarded and not chastised or made to feel embarrassed for speaking up? In addition to a commitment to communication, we need a commitment to systemic thinking. Again, this is a nice follow-up. This point emphasizes the fact that learning leaders embrace and utilize more complex and a more holistic view of the organization and the relationship it shares to the outside world. Rather than viewing the organization as a grouping of distinct, smaller entities making decisions on that micro level, Learning leaders recognize the interdependent nature of departments, the organization, the community it's situated in, within the larger industry it operates. While it might feel easier to make decisions about units and processes department by department, doing so is likely to undermine your ability to harness that collective strength of your organization. This approach also means we're thinking about physical space. Are we leaving the surrounding area better than we found it? Are we investing in the city or cities we operate, in the people and in the environment? We're going to follow this with a commitment to truth. Shine suggests to have a learning culture, we must commit to being pragmatic and to inquiry. Why? There is no one route to problem solving. More importantly, if we tend to rely on only one metric or one approach or one process to generate new ideas, our learning methods remain limited. This leads us to one of my favorite characteristics, a commitment to learning how to learn. Repeat after me, my friends. Learning is good. Learning is worth the investment. The ability to learn, it's a skill, and one that many of us are not explicitly taught, and certainly one that isn't always rewarded in organizations. Unfortunately, sometimes organizations look at those who wish to problem solve or retool and look at them as problems. How do we, how do we change this? Well, Shine makes it easy for us. He recommends feedback seeking. Additionally, you can propose and integrate new methods routinely, but don't leave it there. Take notes on what worked well and what didn't work so well. Again, we're going back to pragmatism and inquiry here. Seeing how all of these work together to foster a really cool, but more importantly, likely a very successful culture. The next two suggestions, these characteristics, eight and nine, go hand in hand. A commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a commitment to cultural analysis to understand and improve the world. 
So often diversity is reduced to skin color, to literal surface deep distinctions and assumptions. It is essential to consider how work groups and organizations are taking steps toward inclusion, whether in suggestions for pronouns in a signature line or holding team building and employee appreciation events during work hours. So associates don't have to make a choice between foregoing workplace relationships and other caregiving needs. We also have to acknowledge, even if employees don't have caregiving needs, that it may show them we value their time to not have little m mandatory events after traditional working hours. In terms of equity, thinking about how we can make decisions and how to provide resources, not equal here, equitable. I'm working on a new book right now. My collaborator found this incredible image to demonstrate the difference between equal and equitable. In the equality or equal photo, an adult and two children, one of whom is in a wheelchair, they're standing behind a fence trying to watch a soccer game. There are three wooden boxes the same height. The adult standing on one and can very, very clearly see over the fence since he is an adult and then he has the added benefit of a box for additional height. The young girl is standing on the box and she's still on her tiptoes and she can just barely see over the fence despite trying so hard to. The other child, the one in the wheelchair, you guessed it, he's next to the box. He has a unimpeded view, not of the game, but you guessed it, of the wall can't see the game at all. This is equality. All things are equal, even when it doesn't make sense. The next image illustrates equity. The adult's box was given to the girl since he didn't need it, and the added box allowed her to easily watch the game. What about the child in the wheelchair? A ramp had been provided so he could sit at the same height as his companions and see over the fence and enjoy the game as well. That drawing provides so many insights as to how leaders should think about equity. Treating all followers equally doesn't necessarily make the workplace equitable. A follower with vision problems might need a bigger computer screen than his colleagues. Someone with mobility issues might need a workstation to be reconfigured to allow for their challenges. In each of these cases, by accommodating the individual employee, the leader is giving them an equitable chance for success. The last characteristic, the one I say for last, a positive assumption about human nature. It's an important one, my friends. I really like this because if you're doing it, you see the results of this assumption. If you're not... If this isn't a given for you, when you make the shift, you will notice swift and tangible results. The way we talk to others, it matters. The way we treat others matters. If we treat employees like they are lazy or less than competent, with time they begin to believe that, or more likely if they know to be expected to be treated badly regardless of their output, why try to go above and beyond? Why try to innovate? Why stay? That taking an approach that your people are engaged, that they want to learn, that they continue to develop new skills, that is a whole different ballgame. Employees who are invested in, who know they are heard, who feel valued, they're more likely to develop trusting, mature relationships with their manager and with their peers. This sets a stage for us to feel safe. 
for us to feel secure, to ask questions, to dissent when the need arises, and to offer opinions. So we just looked at characteristics of learning cultures. Now I want us to think about what leading from a learning perspective looks like. First, a learning leader recognizes and shines words. The world is intrinsically a complex field of interconnected forces in which multiple causations are more likely than linear or simple causes. Yeah, that is a mouthful for sure, but learning leaders who subscribe to this, they hold it as their guiding principle. Why? Because to do so is to commit to learning to be flexible, to thinking systematically and from both the micro and macro levels. What else is part and parcel of enacting a learning leading approach? Adept interpersonal skills. Why? Learning and change cannot be imposed on people. Think about this. From needing to wait for a child to be ready for toilet training to employees who resist learning a new computer system. If someone isn't open to learning or is extremely resistant to change, there's not much we can do, even as their formal authority figure, to get that buy-in. Sure, we can integrate dates things need to be accomplished or old systems go out of commission, but that's a hard road for, for everyone to travel. And through thoughtful, tailored communication, leaders can ask for employees' opinions, talk about possible consequences, see how their particular expertise comes into play in various processes. We can seek out internal opinion leaders, those employees who are social butterflies, so to speak, are boundaries banners, those who seem to know everyone. If we get their buy-in, if they champion a new system or upcoming change, their referent power will likely attract additional buy-in from other employees. Shine leaves us with five requirements of leaders in order to truly be a learning leader. One, New levels of insight into realities of the world and him, her, themselves. Again, heady stuff here, my friends. But I see this as a commitment to remain abreast changes, to commit so much to reflection that it is scheduled into your calendar, to create internal processes where reflection and feedback and frequent check-ins are normative. What's the second extraordinary levels of motivation and commitment to go through, and I quote, the inevitable pain of learning and change. Why do some fear going for additional trainings or advanced degrees? Learning can be hard. There's an element of evaluation in learning. There is a chance we might not cut it. And why do so many fear change? Because experience has taught us that change can be hard. We often, we don't get stuck in those positive changes when we've earned a bonus or a promotion, but rather it's those challenging changes, the times that asked a lot of us or too much of us. Remember, leaders fail forward. Adversity happens. We all fall short sometimes. But what happens next? We take responsibility. We reflect. We make a plan and we move on. The third requirement, this is an important one and a heavy one. The emotional strength to manage your own and others' anxiety as learning and change become the norm. Just as we talked about the fear many of us have about learning new things and about embracing change, naturally there's an element of anxiety tightly coupled around that fear. Anxiety is something we feel. Right now, yes, I recognize you can't see me, but when I hear anxiety, I intuitively place my hand on my stomach. 
For others, it's a tightening of the chest, an ache in the head. Anxiety is palpable. It can infect work groups. You know the feeling, I'm sure. While as a learning leader, you think about how to frame ideas in an employee-centered way, where they are also passionate about being an integral part of the organization's evolution and its continued success. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going to look at some communication strategies you can use to help to ignite passion in your employees. Our fourth requirement is learning new skills to analyze and change cultural assumptions. With embracing DEI and proactively working to make the workplace one where everyone has the ability to be successful and feels welcome. Our fifth and final requirement the willingness and ability to involve others and elicit their participation. This can be hard. I'm calling all of my type A friends out there. I get it. It can be really hard to ask for help and then to accept it. Though if we're not engaging our most important customers, our employees, then are we really leading, let alone enacting the skills of a learning leader? Now about that passion, about that buy-in, about that participation, How do we do it? How do we move from wanting this to be the outcome, but actually communicating in ways that results in engaged and inspired employees? Well, I have some suggestions for you. One, a positive vision of the future. A clear ideal, steps for organizational members to collaborate together. I want you to think about your core values, either as a unit or as an organization. You have a good vision. It needs to build from organizational values. Value what is important and use those values, that inspiration of those core values to guide your decision making. Enacting values through role modeling is essential. I want you to think about demonstrating and teaching an emotional intelligent competencies. Understand your emotions and others. Manage these emotions within relationships and expectations of the organization. Realizing your employees are people, people have feelings, and they have lives outside of the office, that goes a really long way in communicating and connecting with them as a person rather than as an employee. Finally, I want you to think about the courage it takes to be a leader. Courage shows that a leader has more than just technical know-how. It's exemplified through making those difficult decisions, confronting tough issues, and doing what's right. So what are our takeaways here? Embracing a learning mindset, regardless of your organizational role, it helps you to remain flexible, adaptive, and poised for success. I have a friend who's a philosopher, and he always reminds me, Leah, you can't fight the flow. That's what I'm thinking about now. When we take a step back to embrace the fact that one, there is always more to learn, and two, change is inevitable, then instead of feeling surprised or scared or paralyzed by new required trainings or departmental changes, we can put on our learning leader hat and consider what it means to enact or role model leadership during these times. It may help us to recognize we aren't necessarily being victimized or picked on if a new training is required or if our department merges with another, but rather this is what good organizations do. They talk to stakeholders, they grow, and they adapt. On the next episode, we will discuss public leadership. 
Now, my friends, this term encompasses a lot, but we'll be considering things like credibility, impression management, how we frame ourselves as leaders, as well as how our position may impact others. All right, my friends, that wraps up our conversation today. Until next time, communicate with intention and lead with purpose. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again soon on The Communicative Leader.